0: I'm amazed uh, how God writes these stories uh, and you just sometimes feel you're getting carried along in a story, He's writing, and sometimes even now he puts these services together. So thank you to Walter for um, your testimony. Um, I don't think it could, I could have asked for a better introduction to this morning's sermon and that's God's doing. And uh, so open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1 as we continue our study through this Letter to the Romans, God's message to this church and to us. So a Christian is someone who fears God and God's righteous anger against sin and is run to Jesus for rescue and for refuge. A Christian is also someone who realizes that our sin has separated us from the most wonderful person in the universe and has run to Jesus that we can be reconciled to him. That's what a Christian is. Everyone else in the world who's not a Christian is living under some form of self-delusion, self-denial of what is reality and truth. And we'll see that in Romans chapter 1. A small number of, or Romans chapter 2 as we get there, a small number of these people are living with the belief that God doesn't exist, the self-denial that God exists, um, and therefore he, he doesn't exist, and therefore we're not accountable to Him, and I'm not going to be judged by any great being, and I can live the way I want. And um, Actually, there's a small number of people who fall into that category, that version of self-denial, who are atheists or, or even agnostics in the true sense of the word. And Romans chapter 1 addresses these kind of people. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God has so clearly revealed himself in everything that's around us that actually nobody has any excuse for this kind of self-denial, that tries to, where they try to convince themselves he doesn't even exist. There's a small group of people, also relatively small, that are living under the self-denial or the delusion that they are not sinners, that they are, are not that bad. Um, yes, they, you know, uh, they may be not perfect, but they really um, are okay, and they're not really breaking God's law and falling under his wrath. And Romans chapter 2 addresses this group of people um, because it says that God has revealed his law so clearly even into the DNA of man that we are without excuse. So if you look in Romans 2 verse 13 to 16, It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, when those who who didn't even receive the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men, by Christ Jesus. So Romans chapter 1 addresses those who want to deny that God exists and they'll stand before him and be judged. Romans chapter 2 addresses those who want to deny that they are sinners and that they're guilty, they want to plead ignorance of God's law and, and they want to deny that they're going to stand before this holy judge and he addresses them. The vast majority of people though don't fall into those two categories. The vast majority of people fall into a category that says, I know I'm a sinner. They maybe don't say I'm a sinner, but they say, I know I'm not that good. I know I'm not perfect. I know I don't always do the right thing, but they fall into a category where they acknowledge that they're not the perfect human being and they acknowledge God exists, but they don't believe that they will be judged by this God and sent to an eternity without Him in hell. Because. How would you finish that sentence? Your answer to that question determines actually whether you're a Christian or not. How you finish that sentence. What is, the, you know, what is the statement that you put after that? I know I'm not that good. I know I'm not perfect, but... And what is the, the statement or the reason or the expression of your hope that you put after that that makes you believe that you're going to stand before God one day and be okay? Okay be preserved from his wrath or forgiven of your sin or pardoned or shown mercy or however you want to put that. I know I sometimes do wrong, but I'm going to be okay because... Now Romans chapter 2 is dealing with everyone's reasons, everyone's statements, everyone's false hopes, everyone's delusions that they would put after that statement of why they're going to think why they think they're going to be okay. Romans chapter 2 verses 1 to 5 deals with the people who say, I know I'm not that good, but I'm not as bad as that person over there. I'm not that bad. I'm not that sinful. And they have a sort of a relative righteousness where I'm better than them, so I think I'll be okay. Romans 2 1 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So he dismantles that hope completely. Another group of people says, I know I sometimes do wrong. I know I'm not perfect, but I'll be okay because God is merciful. God is gracious. God is loving. God's going to overlook my sin. He's not going to send me to hell. And so Romans 2, 6 to 11 dismantles this excuse. He says in verse 6, He will render To each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And he concludes in verse 11 God shows no partiality. And so he really says to those who, who think that God's just going to be merciful, no, he will render to every single person according to our works. We will get exactly what we deserve based on what we've done because God is an impartial judge showing no favourites and never putting aside his justice for one minute in order to show mercy. And then, of course, he addresses this, this group of people from verses 12 to 24 who either want to plead that they were ignorant of God's law, and therefore God should be merciful, or they were knowledgeable of God's law, and therefore God should be merciful. Either because of what they didn't know, or because of what they did know about God and His character and His law. And that's why they think they're going to be acquitted. And of course on both accounts he says, no. Verse 13, it's not the hearers of the law uh, who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law. God's judgment is not going to be based on what you did or did not know, but what you did or did not do. And so he's systematically dismantling everything, every hope that a person would put after the statement, I know I'm not that good, I know I'm perfect, I know I'm a sinner, I know I fall short in some ways, but I think I'm going to be okay on that day of judgment, because what is the reason you have? This morning's text is really verses 25 to 29. And it dismantles another false hope. Yeah, God is going to dismantle these people that say, I know I'm not that good. I know I'm sometimes not perfect, but... But I've been part of God's people... I've been part of the church. I've done all the right rituals and programs and followed all the right acts and behaviors that God expects of me. I've associated myself with the right people. And therefore, surely, I'll be okay on that day of judgment. And he's going to say, no. You'll notice in the text, the text speaks a lot about circumcision. And circumcision is really a shorthand for saying those who trusted in their ritual and trusted in their special position before God, trusted in the fact that they were set apart and part of God's covenant people, that they'd been included with these covenant people of God. They trusted in that. And Paul says that is no reason to think you're going to be okay on the Day of Judgment. So let's read the text. Romans chapter 2 verses 25 to 29 For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you, have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So I want to just for a moment translate this into modern terms, apply it into modern terms, lest you think this is all just about Jews and circumcision, and you don't realize this is about you. So what I want to say is in this text, God is addressing a group of people who by application associate themselves with his people and think they're going to be fine because of that. Because they've been christened as a baby, because they've been baptized, or because they're a member of a church, or because they take communion and have participated in the various rituals that are associated with the church, they think they'll be fine. He's addressing a group of people that, that think because they've grown up in the church, young people, because you've grown up among Christians and you have Christian friends and maybe Christian parents and, or maybe even elder as a father, that you're going to be okay on that day of judgment, that somehow God is just going to let you off the hook despite the fact that you know you're a sinner. This text is speaking to you. And some of you sitting here this morning as we even heard from Walter's testimony some of you are sitting here this morning belonging in this category. Some of you think you're going to be okay on the day of judgment but your faith is misplaced and your hope is unfounded because it's based in where you find yourself in a church building this morning and not where it ought to be in Christ and Christ alone. And so please listen to this text as as we unfold it. Firstly, the value of circumcision. Secondly, the significance of obedience. And thirdly, the way to obedience. So firstly, the value of circumcision in verse 25. Romans 2.25 says, Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So let's just go and get the Old Testament background to this concept of circumcision. So keep your finger here in Romans and turn to Genesis 17. Genesis 17. God is speaking to Abraham and he's entering into the Abrahamic covenant with him. A covenant with him, a firm and binding agreement. Genesis chapter 17, verses 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. So God enters into this covenant relationship with Abraham and he says this is going to be the sign of the covenant. This is going to signify that you are in this covenant relationship. You must be circumcised and your children must be circumcised on the eighth day. And the nation of Israel is is the nation that grew out of Abraham's loins as it were. They were the descendants that came from Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Israel. And so, circumcision was an, an indication, an external sign that we are God's chosen people. We are God's special people. We've entered into a covenant relationship with God. And so, certainly, we will not perish. Despite our disobedience, we will not perish. Circumcision was regarded as, as many Jews, even still today, but all along Israel's history, circumcision was almost like your, your get out of hell ticket. The sign that you'd be okay no matter what, you were part of God's covenant people. Listen to this quote from an ancient rabbi. No person who is circumcised will go to Gehenna, which is an Old Testament term for hell. No person who is circumcised is going to go there. Even though I'm not perfectly keeping the law, I'm circumcised. I'm in the special covenant relationship with God. I'm part of God's covenant people and that gives me a get out of hell card. Special privilege. When God comes to judgment, I'm somehow going to just be acquitted. Paul says, no. That's what Paul says. He says there in verse 25, circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law... Your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. You become in the same position of someone who's uncircumcised, someone who's outside the covenant people of God. So Paul can say, yes, there is value in circumcision, but not in a sense that will rescue you from God's wrath. And that's what he goes on in in chapter 3, verse 1 to say, then what advantage has the Jew? or What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the very oracles of God. So he's going, is there value in being a Jew? You bet. You were the ones who were given God's revelation, God's law. You were his special people. He drew close to you and entered into a covenant relationship with you. But don't think that that is going to rescue you from wrath. Don't think that that's a guarantee that God's just going to be merciful to you. That's what Paul is saying. He's not trying to say there's no advantage in being a Jew at all. He's saying there's no advantage in being a Jew if you think that's going to make you, give you favorable treatment, unjust treatment on the day of justice and judgment. It's going to rescue you from wrath. Are the Jews any better off? Chapter 3 and verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? when it comes to God's judgment, when it comes to the rightful condemnation for sin, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and together have become worthless. So you can see where this argument goes. Being a Jew it doesn't get you any special treatment on the day of judgment. Being Formerly a part of this covenant people of God, externally a part of it, doesn't get you any special treatment on the day of judgment. Being a part of the church or a member of the church or coming to church or reading your Bibles or saying your prayers or, or taking communion or practicing any other ritual, calling yourself a Christian doesn't give you any special treatment on the day of judgment. Being called a Christian doesn't give you any special treatment on the Day of Judgment by application. Second, the significance of obedience. The significance of obedience. He doesn't stop there. He says in verse 26 and 27, So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. So, he has a man who's not circumcised, not formally a part of God's special covenant people, he's not part of the Jewish nation, yet he obeys the law, and because of his obedience, God regards him as being part of the covenant people. That's what the text says. And in fact, his obedience stands in judgment to accuse those who, who were formerly part of God's covenant people and yet didn't keep the law. And that's because God's judgment is based on works. And yeah, he's taking a theoretical Gentile, a theoretical person who hasn't been circumcised. He's taking a hypothetical case. It's the same thing that he did back in chapter six. He's he's taking, let's take this for example, not saying that there is such a person. He's not meaning to say that this person actually exists. He's trying to illustrate the principle that he's already established. God's judgment is objective and just and impartial and it's based on works. What you did or did not do and nothing else. And he established that back in chapter 2, verse 6. I just read that in the introduction. He will render to each one according to his works. And there he also painted both sides. To those who patience in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. If there's a man who perfectly obeys God and seeks God and persists in doing good, he he will get rewarded with eternal life. But... For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every man who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. God is completely impartial. Glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, Jew first and also the Greek. God shows no partiality. But he's not talking about an actual person. He's talking about a hypothetical person for the sake of argument, for the sake of illustrating the principle that God's judgment is based on works. And if you don't believe me, just think about this. He says, let's take an example of an uncircumcised person who completely obeys the law. What was one of the first things someone who wanted to obey the law should do? Be circumcised. (laughs) That's a logical contradiction Somebody who completely obeys the law but doesn't obey one of the first laws. Because again, he's not talking about an actual example. He's taking a theoretical example. Someone, let's say, let's pose theoretically, there was someone who completely obeyed the law but who was outside God's covenant people, who was not regarded as part of God's covenant people. That's what he's saying. Such a person, by their obedience, would be regarded as part of God's covenant people. And likewise, you Jews who who are formally and externally and officially part of God's people, but disobey and disregard his law, you will be regarded as someone who's uncircumcised, someone who's outside the covenant people of God. That's his illustration here, that's his example. Why? Because God's judgment is based on works. And those who are guilty will be judged guilty, and those who are innocent will be judged innocent and rewarded. He's presenting something that is a logical impossibility. If he had said, let's imagine a Gentile who completely obeys the law, we could be excused for thinking he was talking about a real person that could really exist. But that's not how he puts it. He says, let's imagine an uncircumcised person, hang on, who completely obeys the law. Such a person, how will he be regarded by God? What is the principle by which God judges? Well, what he's saying is, it's not, it's not who you formerly a part of. It's not who you formally identified with. God looks and says, what did you or did you not do? Which is the principle he's been espousing all along. Which is why he's going to go on to say, it doesn't matter whether you're part of God's covenant people in the Old Testament, a Jew, or whether you're not part of God's covenant people, the Gentiles you're in trouble. God's wrath is being poured out on both Jew and Gentile alike. In fact, you're in trouble no matter where you look, no matter where you go. That's where he's heading because you're all deserving of God's judgment which is why he's then going to have to say God had to provide another way because the way of obedience leads to a dead end street in God's wrath whether Jew or Gentile whatever your background, whatever your doctrine, whatever your upbringing, wherever wherever you come from, if you're going to try by your works, by your obedience, by your performance, gain a right standing with God, all that you're going to gain as your rightful reward is wrath. The wages of sin is death, he'll say in Romans 6.23. Therefore, God has to provide another way, another way for sinners to be made right with him, and that's the basis for his gospel. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Romans chapter 5, verse 18, when he starts to present the gospel. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass but where sin increased grace abounded all the more so that as sin uh, reigned in death grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life in Jesus Christ our law. There is only one man who has merited righteousness by perfect obedience to God's law and his name is Jesus Christ and therefore he is the way. That God has provided, and the only way. Every other way that people try to follow is going to result in them being rewarded with the rightful judgment that they falling short deserves. And therefore, God provides another way for us to be made righteousness, to be to be made righteous. The gospel is grounded in a very objective reality. That's what you've got to realize. The gospel is grounded in a very objective reality. The perfect obedience of Jesus Christ that fulfills all of God's righteous requirements, that completely fulfills God's law, and his sacrificial death that completely satisfies his wrath and takes away our sin. There's something very objective that needed to happen that God himself provided so that his justice could be upheld and his mercy could be displayed. The gospel is grounded in the accomplishments of Jesus Christ rather than your own. And that's why the message of the gospel is a call to turn away from your own accomplishments, your own righteousness, your own attempts to be made right with God, your own hope and confidence in your efforts and to turn to the way that God has provided in Christ and Christ alone. You see, so often I think we overestimate the value of our own obedience and we underestimate the value of Christ's perfect obedience. Listen to me. Too often we overvalue our own efforts, our own attempts, our own sincerity, our own abilities to perform and we undervalue what Jesus Christ has provided That is all the righteousness that God requires. By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We want God sometimes to reward our accomplishments. We want God to be impressed with us. We want God to think we're okay. When the gospel says, you're not impressive, you're not okay. But there is one who is. Hide yourself in Him. Hide yourself in Him. Come to God with Him. Let God be impressed with him as you hold on to him. So thirdly, the way to obedience. So the value of circumcision, the significance of obedience, it is the only way by which anyone will be declared righteous before God. And then thirdly, the way to obedience. Verses 28 and 29 No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul is getting ready now to present the gospel, but he's not quite ready. He's he's not going to present the gospel yet. He's got a bit more condemnation to do. (laughs) a bit more bad news, a bit more convincing us that there's no other hope, no other way, no other solution, no other righteousness. But, but yeah, he just begins to hint at what he's going to expand on. There is a way that God is providing. He speaks here in verse 29 of a circumcision that takes place in the heart of man. The kind of circumcision that God looks upon And is pleased with. His praise is from God, not from man. That's what verse 29 says. Don't miss this. Because this is the beginning of the kernel of the gospel that he's going to expand on. He says there is something that man looks at and and thinks this is nothing. What is this? It does no external form that, that impresses man. But it impresses God. It's a circumcision that takes place in the heart of man. And it's not merely external and physical. That's the contrast he's drawing. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. The true Jew, the true person who's reconciled to God and in a right relationship with God, the true person who's righteous before God, is one who's had this take place. Circumcision of the heart. Not circumcision of the flesh not ritual and obedience, not what man can accomplish, not performance, not works, not the external associations that people so often look to, but something that, that takes place in the very core of a being. Circumcision of the heart means in the core of your being, you're set apart from sin and set apart unto God. In the core of your being, your core of your being is transported and becomes holy God's. And it's not something that man can do. Because what does the text say? Circumcision by the Spirit. That's how it takes place. God has to do something. And these things are connected. If you look over in chapter 3 in verse 20, for the, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. For since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. By, By human works and achievements and accomplishments, no one's going to be justified. But now, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so he connects something that God is going to do, a way of righteousness that's going to make us right with God. But yeah, he talks about how it's going to happen. Something's going to transform our very hearts. Someone is going to transform our very hearts. God the Spirit is going to do something in the core of our being that sets us apart unto God and establishes us right with Him. Now, let me just connect this again to the latter parts of Romans, just so you can see how this book merges together. Paul's going to pick up on this in Romans chapter 7 when he comes to sanctification, when he, when he comes to how do we live righteously, practical righteousness before, before the Lord. Notice what he says in Romans chapter 7 verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So we've died to the law, the way of the law. The law is righteousness and the the way of the law in leading us towards righteousness. We've died to that in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law would work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's all that the law produced because of the the desires of our flesh, the corruptness of our flesh. The law just showed us our sin and just um, encouraged us to... Plunge headlong in it. But, verse 6, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way. And now we serve God, we live out our righteousness before God in a new way, the way of the Spirit, and not of the old way of the written code. Wow, God has provided a new way of righteousness and a new way of living. And He contrasts the way of the law, the way of external obedience, the way of human effort and the way of the Spirit, the way of circumcision of the heart, the way of grace, the way of faith in Jesus Christ. These are two different ways of living. And so often, even as Christians, we we want our justification, we want to stand before God in a right relationship by grace through faith, but we want our sanctification, we want to live our daily practical righteousness out by the way of law. We want to go back to that old way, that old burden, And and we want to go back to our performance and bring that to God to impress him. But God has created a whole new way. And as people challenge Paul's gospel that says God has made a new way of righteousness that's not based in anything you do. And they say, well then, shouldn't we just sin and enjoy it? His answer is not, no, we shouldn't. His answer is not that we should not. His answer is, we cannot. We cannot. Because God has done something in our hearts his spirit has done a regenerating work. And like I say, this is not the full doctrine. This is just in Romans chapter 2, the beginning hints of it. God has done a circumcision of the heart, a regenerating of the heart, a transformation of the heart of stone and the heart of flesh and made it into a a new person, a new creation with new desires, new inclinations and new direction in life. And where our old flesh was always drawn towards rebellion and disregard of God's law, our new person is led by the spirit into righteousness look at this in romans chapter 8 verse 1 there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in christ jesus from the law of sin and death for god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh and notice here yeah, it's talking about the condemnation of sin and the right standing that we have before God. Our, our, we don't stand under condemnation. Verse 4 In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. But notice what the next phrase says In us what? Who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the f- flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, he could say, you have trusted in Christ. You've been justified by grace through faith. You, are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you and anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Anyone who not been circumcised by the spirit does not belong to him. And now we can see as Paul presents the gospel he presents on one side those who are living by works, by performance, by law by obedience, by self-effort and trying to think that they'll be okay one day because of that. And those who've realized that that is empty and it's only going to gain me judgment and who've cast themselves on the Lord Jesus Christ and have had their hearts transformed by the Spirit and are now living by walking in the power of the Spirit, following the leading of the Spirit. And they're two different people in two different ways of life. And that whole idea that someone can be here and living for sin and be saved is incompatible with the gospel as Paul presents it. Those in the flesh cannot please God. They're not right with God and they cannot please God and they will not stand in the day of judgment. And those who've had their hearts circumcised have been made right before God in their standing and their hearts have been transformed and they've been led in greater and greater obedience and love and devotion to Jesus Christ by the Spirit who wars against this flesh and He wins. He wins. So if you've been losing me here, I just want you to sit for a moment and just ask of yourself, which camp do you belong in? When you stand before the Lord one day, and He says, "You," you and He asks you, "Why should I let you into heaven? Why should my wrath against you be averted?" What are you going to say? Because Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 leaves you speechless. And if you've cast yourself on the Lord Jesus Christ, He's forgiven you and He's transformed you and you have new desires and the Spirit has circumcised your heart and there's new fruit beginning to be produced in your life. And if you don't see the fruit, then the Spirit is not there. If you don't see the evidence of a transformed life that has been transformed by God's supernatural power, it hasn't happened. Don't fool yourself. When God raises a man from the dead, He does it. And we can see it. Don't sit there and fool yourself and think that you don't see any evidence of God transforming work in your life, of a heart that's now set apart unto Him and yet think it's happened. If it hasn't happened, it hasn't happened. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm not talking about never struggling with sin. I'm not talking about a real wrestling. I'm talking about a heart that now doesn't want to move towards sin, that doesn't want to embrace this that was leading to death, and a heart that does want to move towards Jesus Christ, that does delight in Him, that does find Him to be more and more beautiful and sufficient, that longs for Him, that's the work of the Spirit. And if it hasn't happened, it hasn't happened. If you don't have a longing to be rid of your sin and a longing to have the fullness of Jesus Christ, you have not had the circumcision which the Spirit alone can do. And the only hope for you is to cast yourself on the Lord Jesus Christ. Cast yourself on the Lord Jesus Christ confessing your sin and your wretchedness and your lostness and asking Him to do to you and in you and for you what you've been unable to do for yourself. Please, don't just go through life thinking that you'll be found by some other means.